welcome back to the Big Green Politics Podcast. Yes, we are back. I'm Julia. And I'm Sedan. Julia, how long has it been? I don't even know. Like, too long, too long. We have taken some time to reformat and do some infrastructural work. (laughs) But now that I think about it, if we had the time and the resources, I think we would have recorded an episode on the Australian fires. Yeah. The Turkish government's invasion in Syria and then also the same government sending um, Syrian refugees to Greece, opening their borders, the US and Iran war, and then of course the one and only Brexit from January. Yeah, um, yeah, a lot has <laughs> happened just just in 2020. <laughs> just then, it's, it's only April. <laughs> yeah. It's been just four months. And now we're dealing with a global pandemic, which is why we wanted to do this episode, give some personal updates and our political analysis and also just check in with all of you. Yeah, I guess another reason we've been absent for a while is that we've had some professional upheaval. I lost a job, um, said I gained a job. It's not the same job, don't worry. (laughs) We're still friends. (laughs) Um, Kind of, sort of. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, we've kind of been been adjusting to to new new careers, but we are we are really lucky to be in safe, secure places right now, which is definitely not the case for everyone. And we hope that you are safe and well, and those around you are safe also, and that you're able to find comfort where you can. That you're coping okay with this really difficult situation that's new for everyone, really, and that's so global. And I think it's been. Interesting from a UK perspective, having thought that Brexit was just this, like was everything, was the most like disastrous kind of life-changing thing to realise actually. (laughs) I don't know, that it's not the most important thing in the world and that the shit doesn't stop coming at you. I mean, it also took me some time to get back into podcasting because I've also had COVID-19, still recovering Mm. slash recovered, but it keeps coming back for some reason. But Mm. other than that, like you said, everything has been fine. And yeah, we are quite lucky in that sense. But actually, um, I think for this episode, I actually proposed a drinking game. So... We can do it as well as our. I've only got tea. Our listeners, you had Bailey's. Don't lie. I've got some tea. No, you didn't. I finished the Bailey's. <laughs> there you go. Before we started recording. So whenever we say COVID or coronavirus, you can just sip a little bit of whatever you you have at home. I mean, also totally fine mm. if you're like sipping some ginger tea because immunity first right now. But <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm. I'm going to be drinking some beer. There you go. Oh my God. What is this episode? <laughs> some ASMR action. <laughs> yeah. So drink when you hit COVID-19 or coronavirus. Oh shit show. I also feel like because we're safe and in a position where things are okay, we also have the responsibility to do some political analysis and then cover what's going on mm. to make sure that we talk about it from a green angle, but also to make sure that 
whatever that post COVID nineteen world is going to look like, we'll make sure that it look it'll look green. Hmm. So maybe we can talk about the UK first. I mean, you live there. What's going on? How is Boris doing? Boris is great. Boris is, you know, Boris is back on Easter Sunday. He is risen again, like Christ. Oh no! You know, You're yeah, kidding. yeah. And you know, this is the perfect time for conspiracy theories. It's so interesting to see how this pandemic's like intersecting with so much other shit that was going on in the world. But definitely, mm. like the rise in conspiracy theories and fake news just intersecting so well with COVID-19 because people genuinely don't know much about it. So it's so easy. Yeah. And it feels like we're in a sci-fi movie right now. Yeah. Like conspiracy theories do go well with, you know, that kind of a setting. Yeah, it's been a bit of a wild ride for the UK these past few months. It's been interesting to see this government's um, reaction to COVID-19 drink. We had one of the most socialist budgets ever seen in the UK proposed by the most right-wing government that we've seen. Mm-hmm. So that's that's been interesting. However, obviously, I would say it's been a response that you would expect from a strongman politician, quite similar in some ways to what we've seen with Trump and Bolsonaro mm-hmm. um, and Orban, which is, which is a kind of macho attitude so different to, for example, Jacinda Ardern's response in New Zealand. I mean, that's also interesting because, you know, we call these politicians strongmen. They're quite egotistical, narcissists, and whatever they're dealing with, they will never accept that they're weak or vulnerable. And when you compare how these leaders responded to, and their governments responded to, uh, the global pandemic, when you compare that to how female leaders responded, one of my friends recently said, all these female prime ministers and presidents, they're doing really well. And that could be because to be able to respond to something like a global pandemic, like the COVID-19 pandemic, you first need to accept that you're weak, accept that you're vulnerable, and then go from there. Wow. I mean, when you look at these strong men, you know that that's not what they're about. And then you look at the countries that are doing really well right now. I mean, compared to obviously the other ones, you can see seven countries that are doing really well. And they all have women, female leaders like Germany, Iceland, Belgium, New Zealand, Finland, Denmark and Taiwan. Belgium. Yeah. Yeah, so Belgium has now an like an interim prime minister who is oh. a woman. And she's been doing really well. That's so interesting. All these countries actually very proactive decision making from their part, medical gear, and how they interact with the public, how mm-hmm. empathetic they are, how transparent they yeah. are and reassuring. Exactly. How they manage a very uncertain scary pandemic. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, there was an article that came out recently written by an old friend of Boris Johnson's and he said, Boris Johnson doesn't believe in illness. Like he doesn't <laughs> believe, he believes it's for weak people. And Bolsonaro similarly has, has, there's a video that came out of him talking to Brazilians about it a couple of weeks ago. And he's like, oh, just take it like a man, just take it, you'll get through it. And it's similarly about being a fighter. It's almost as if it's like a battle of wills against the virus and you. 
I mean, in one way, it has been portrayed as as something that you should be very macho against, right? So that's one thing. Yeah. But the other part of it is just like you said, it has been portrayed as a battle, a war. And following that logic, it's quite nationalistic. This is a national mm -hmm. security issue. Even though this is literally a global pandemic, it's not a national issue. Yeah. Everyone is dealing with it. We're all in this together. If yeah. one of us fucks up, all the other ones are going down with that, you know, country, nation, society. Mm. I've been seeing a lot of headlines like the greatest challenge since the Second World War or the front line of this fight, the invisible enemy referring to the, to the virus. Yeah. But it just made me think in the New World Order, quote unquote, these governments love talking about how they're in a war with intangible, unliving things, even emotions yeah. like terror. Yeah. The war on terror, the war on yeah. drugs, literally a substance. Yeah. You can't have an armed conflict with substance. <laughs> and, you know, they don't talk about their war with Yemen or in yeah. Syria. It's also partly the same like Tim self-victimization that strong men have like trump that's everyone's against me i mm -hmm. i'm just a brave like lone pioneer in a world that's full of liberals <laughs> yeah it's a kind of a victim complex mm -hmm. they have to be the heroes of something they love it they need it exactly and i think how they set up or lay down that ground is like you just create this war with something that you can't actually have a war with. So it's so abstract. It's a war that's impossible to win. But mm. for conservative thinking people, for a regular Joe who's listening to this, it's just too much to understand because it's actually impossible. Mm. Someone that whose job is not um, has something to do with politics, this is too much to understand, let alone come up with a solution for it. So whenever this happens, they just disassociate and trust this strong authoritarian man mm. that offers simple solutions. So yeah. they don't have to question it. It's the easy way out. So they don't have to critically think about the measures that are being taken. It's just too much. Yeah. How can you have a war with a virus? You can't. Mm. And mm. there's just one person, you can't come up with measures for that. Yeah. So I think this has been a great way for governments like US and the UK to take attention away from how they're mismanaging a pandemic and just say, this is what our nation is going through. It's just our nation. It's yeah. a war. It's a war. Yeah. And if you're in a war, if you're not with and defending your government, then you're against it. Exactly. You have to take a side in a war. Are you against the virus or are you with your government? Obviously, you're with your government. It forces exactly. you to, to be loyal and to stop criticizing. And in the UK, there's also canonization, if I can mm -hmm. say that, of the NHS. Yeah. There's this like sentimental way of talking about it, which implies that anyone who says anything about what's happening in the NHS, and mostly it's medical professionals being underprovided with personal protective equipment, which is not mm -hmm. their fault. It's a sentimental way of talking about it, uh, whilst at the same time underfunding it, privatizing it, not listening to what they say they need, not providing enough equipment. So what you just said made me think of this kind of nationalist narrative. Mm -hmm. Like you're trying to trigger a lot of emotions 
And like you said, people stop critically thinking about whatever is going on and just like have this emotional yeah. bond to whatever is happening. And that's in this yeah. case, obviously the NHS. I mean, it's good that you're supporting them. We should all support them, but it doesn't run on emotions. Yeah. Emotions will only help so much to the staff. You need more funding. Mm -hmm. The exact group that's been triggering your emotions and mobilizing you around that emotion is the group that has been defunding the NHS. Yeah. It's like this, um, this happens in every country, right? This kind of clap for the NHS, uh, light a candle in India. I think some of it's kind of quite symbolic and powerful and can bring people together. And it's, and it's important to have these moments because although it's a, such a shared experience, global collective experience, we're all experiencing it in different ways, as you said earlier. So it's a good way to connect with people when we're so distanced. But yeah, it can really erase all of the actual accountability, all of the actual practical considerations. I kind of see the clapping thing, and because we do it here in Belgium as well, as like the first step towards thinking about and appreciating those key workers and health staff, which should lead you to think about, is the NHS actually funded? Should it be yeah. funded more? Do they have the equipment? But if it's just getting you excited and actually kind of like in a weird savior complexy way, if it's just like, all right, I've done my duty today. I got nothing else to do for this. Yeah. For the for the society. Great. Done. Yeah. I clap for one and a half minutes, feeling great about it. Yeah. And then you just feel good about yourself, like good about the NHS in a patriotic way, but not mm. in a constructive way. Yeah. That's how I see the clapping. Yeah. We've seen this in, in the US, in the UK as well. The Queen was on TV saying, let's just clap. Like this clapping thing is the British spirit. No, it's not the British spirit. You're one of the last nations to start doing. We've all been doing it. <laughs> Isn't that unbelievable? <laughs> like, like, yeah. That has been the narrative, which could and has been going towards more isolationism. Because as mm. you said, there will be leaders who will use this as an opportunity to go more isolationist. And of course, you know, we've been seeing a lot of headlines with anti-globalization sentiment, questioning and implying that this should be the end of globalization or is globalization one to blame for this? Mm. I mean, it is a fair question to ask if globalization is or whether or not it's going to survive this. In many ways, it's making people reflect on how interdependent they are, which could could be spun positively in acknowledging that we're mm -hmm. all, our well-being is connected. It has made people think about where their food comes from, what global systems of trade are they reliant on, how far the products that their basic needs rely on travel, mm -hmm. which in some way from a green perspective localization is is kind of what you're what you're aiming for thinking global acting local if this is going to make people question this capitalistic system that we're in mm -hmm. which is based on endless trade and growth fair enough great <laughs> but i guess like one thing i've realized when i was reading those um headlines the way people define globalization is um growth trade but like you said thinking global 
that is not just trade and growth. Yeah. And globalization is just much more than that. It's ideas traveling. It's yeah. scientific research traveling across the globe. Yeah. It's much more yeah. multidimensional than that. Action on climate change. Exactly. Yeah. Mobilization around political ideas, revolutions. Yeah. Solidarity. Yes. Yes, exactly. Mm, it's true. Yeah, it depends how you view it. Exactly. And I think this is how we should start talking about it and differentiate. It's not globalization, it's capitalism. So true. What we're actually referring to is growth-obsessed capitalism and that kind of trade. Yeah, it's a profit-driven economic system. Yeah. yeah. The inequalities it's created and it continues to create infinitely have been magnified by this. And it's kind of laying bare a lot of... Exactly. Of what's already there and already how... And stuff like, you know, how many people are living hand-to-mouth, really. This was an emergency, but then it turned into basically a disaster because of capitalism. Mm. And also this profit-driven system, because we have that kind of system, politicians like Donald Trump or Boris, they cared about the economy more than the people in, in those countries yeah. and their livelihoods. Mm. Like Boris didn't go on lockdown for weeks. Mm because he didn't want the economy to stop or get damaged. That's true. I was thinking about this today. The people that don't take any responsibility for what's happening right now, they haven't gone on lockdown, even though they should have. They don't take responsibility with anything. Mm. Like with capitalism, they claim, oh, it's just the virus's fault. You know, the economy is not doing well because of the virus. But before the virus, everything was perfect. The economy was perfect. As if the economy was working for everyone. Yeah. And in the same way, like with the climate crisis, it's kind of out of their control. It's either like in the US, it's it's God's doing. <laughs> God's warming the globe a little bit. It's not what we are doing. Yeah to earth it's it's not in our control they just never take responsibility it's always something else fault mm. and the system was perfect before that thing happened and that is mainly a result of like since the 1980s governments have been told to take a back seat mm. and just let business create wealth and mm. and the government's duty was to intervene only if there was like a huge problem. Mm. But then, of course, the result is governments are never properly prepared and they're not equipped to deal with crises such as this one and the climate emergency. And this is why we, the Greens, really need to take a very close look at how COVID is being handled mm. and why it was mismanaged and think about new strategies and take some lesson learns. It's not that this virus just showed up and everything went downhill. We were just ill-prepared to face a crisis like this. But we also need to kind of like think about our hectic lives, like you said. With the lockdown, we're like stopping a bit right now, right? We're taking a step back and reflecting on things. Mm. And I feel like the more quote-unquote advanced the economy 
the more individualistic we've got mm-hmm. and the culture has gotten, the faster the speed of life. So are people ready to consider that capitalism is the problem because of the mm. reasons that we just listed? At the end of the day, it is the whole system. It's scary to think about a huge problem like that and kind of imagining what it would be like if it's over. Mm. Like, can we stop being scared about the end of it and just instead be excited to build something else? Yeah, this is where our Ndati voice thinking comes right in. What is this thing that has happened to us? It's a virus, yes. In and of itself, it holds no moral brief. But it's definitely more than a virus. Some believe it's God's way of bringing us to our senses. Others, that it's a Chinese conspiracy to take over the world. Whatever it is, coronavirus has made the mighty kneel and brought the world to a halt like nothing else could. Our minds are still racing back and forth, longing for a return to normality, trying to stitch our future to our past and refusing to acknowledge the rupture. But the rupture exists. And in the midst of this terrible despair, it offers us a chance to rethink the doomsday machine we have built for ourselves. Nothing could be worse than a return to normality. Historically, pandemics have forced humans to break with the past and imagine their world anew. This one is no different. It's a portal, a gateway between one world and the next. We can choose to walk through it, dragging the carcasses of our prejudice and hatred, our avarice, our data banks and dead ideas, our dead rivers, and smoky skies behind us. Or we can walk through lightly with little luggage, ready to imagine another world and ready to fight for it. So that's an extract from an article Arundhati Roy has written in the Financial Times, which is free and available online, and we'll post that below. It's really hard to take a step back when we're so much in the middle of what's going on. But definitely, it's interesting to think about how this can be an opportunity for rethinking everything, for for changing everything, because everything has already changed. It's had to change. And for so long, we've been told, no, we can't change this. Like, no, we can't stop that. And then we did. We did. Yeah. And then we did. We did. And we did stop a lot of things. Yeah. Like, if this was possible all along, when circumstances demand it, Mm. what excuse is there for, like, not going for it from now on? And especially when it comes to climate change. Yeah, yeah. We really need to take a look at how we're handling the COVID-19 situation, learn lessons from it, and apply the same kind of logic, messaging, and everything to the climate crisis. Yeah, like, oh, is this how we react in in a real emergency? Oh, okay. Mm. We can do this for the other emergency then. (laughs) All the others. Inequality, climate change, domestic violence. Exactly. This actually reminded me what you just said, an article I read a couple of days ago. It's actually from a year ago, but it's quite relevant right now because Amsterdam just said they're going to do donut economics. Mm. 
and basically build the city based on that model. So cool. And the Green European Journal has an interview about that. Teen Hands interviewed Kate Raworth, who's the author of Donut Economics. And the interviewer asks, how do we shift our economic system so that it meets the need of the people within the means of the planet? And Kate Raworth just went, we just do it. That's how. <laughs> oh, God. I <laughs> love it. It's a great answer. It's such a good answer. <laughs> it's like, yeah, well, what's the whole premise of that question? <laughs> like, what? <laughs> Oh my god. Yeah, like this pandemic showed us. Yeah, yeah we just do it. We just did it. <laughs> so in a matter true. of like two weeks, especially in Europe. We just did it because we had to. It was a radical change. We just adapted. Yeah. That's what human beings do. This pandemic has magnified all existing inequalities. We thought it'd be interesting to, to look at the intersections of, of race that's been really strong coming out in the UK and it's been even covered by news outlets like the Daily Mail that do a lot to foster the racism of, of this country. But they've had articles saying, why is such a high percentage of people dying and critically ill from COVID-19 people of colour, BME? Mm -hmm. It'll be interesting to see what the final stats are about that. But yeah, from a UK perspective, uh, the first four doctors that have died from contracting COVID-19 have all been Muslim men of colour. So, for example, a third of uh, people who've been critically ill have been people of colour. They make up only about 13% of the British population. So that's that's almost triple. There's so much, so many other factors to look at, like, you know, increased levels of air pollution in more deprived regions where more people of colour live, issues like uh, more cramped housing. So, for example, 30% of the UK Bangladeshi population lives in overcrowded housing compared to just 2% of the general population. And also, if you look at the percentage of workers who are working in MS care as personal assistants in the medical professions, so many of them are people of colour and so many of them are migrants. And these people that we need so hard now and who kept working despite yeah. lockdown because they are key workers. Yeah, and bus drivers as well. All these people who, many of them are migrants, um, you know, from Polish care workers to, you know, Somali doctors. And mm -hmm. all these people that we need now that we're clapping for every Thursday night to eight, they're exactly the people that our media and our government has spent the past <laughs> 10 years demonizing and creating hostile environment for. Similar dynamic in the US with the virus disproportionately afflicting people of color, black people. Mm. Like you said, there are a lot of reasons for it, like more crowded spaces, like you said, again, them being key workers or they're not in the position to leave their jobs or they don't have health care. Mm. There is another aspect which I'm surprised that it doesn't get talked about a lot, which is racial bias and pain assessment and treatment mm. in the way that women, when they see a doctor or a hospital, they really need to prove that they are in pain and it's unbearable in the way that they really try to get the doctor, male doctor, to listen to them about their pain and actually do something about it. People of color, black people, there's a similar dynamic where they really need to prove that they're in pain and they're more likely to get dismissed because of a um, 
situation mm. where a white person yeah. will be taken seriously and actually get treated. That's such a good point. I haven't seen that highlighted either. Um, and also I think there's um, a sense of entitlement that white people, middle class people, definitely feel much more strongly mm -hmm. towards getting the medical support and care that they need. Exactly. That's a really good point about the disbelief of pain. And um, I think that plays a role in why black women in the US are twice as likely as white women to die from childbirth or complications in pregnancy. Mm -hmm. And already the International Planned Parenthood Federation has reported growing numbers of countries are reporting shortages of contraceptives. And we can imagine that access to abortion is going to be limited due to this crisis. It's already been mm -hmm. limited in the US. Um, so obviously everything's kind of magnified for women of color. Yeah. And I think in terms of the impact on women, there's an article I'd really recommend reading by Helen Lewis in The Atlantic called um, This Pandemic is a Crisis for Feminism or something like that. We'll post it in the link below. Wow. <laughs> You're really prepared with that recommendation. <laughs> I made so many notes and I like, just forgot to write Thank the you, crucial, Julia. the crucial element of, <laughs> that is the title. But yeah, it's a really good piece because she talks about the things that you'd expect, like how women will have renewed demands upon their time for, for caring for old people, sick people, children who are being take, taken out of the paid work kind of environment and how that's going to impact on their career. She talks about domestic violence and how that's going to increase. But it's also interesting because she looks at previous epidemics and pandemics such as Zika in 2015 or more recent SARS pandemics and looks at their long-term mm -hmm. and short-term effects on women and girls in those countries. So yeah, check it out. Amazing. And you know, the dangerous part of this is these things will not just automatically disappear when a vaccine is created. Exactly. They will be there again in different forms and in different ways. Yeah. And we've seen racism also playing a role in when it comes to the pandemic and China. Mm. Some governments basically chose to use the Chinese culture as a convenient scapegoat. I mean, I think Donald Trump even used the words the Chinese virus. Yeah. But were you going to say something? No, no. I was just hearing what you're going to say about that. Just just waiting. <laughs> I'm just going to leave it at that. You know what? Like, <laughs> <laughs> I think that those words say it all. <laughs> yeah. And then, of course, two absolutely brilliant doctors from France. Oh, my God. <laughs> Sorry. Thought it was a, an amazing idea to do vaccination trials to see if a tuberculosis vaccine would prove effective against the virus in Africa. Oh my God. Africa, by the way. Like, <sighs> we don't know which part, which country is Africa. Just, uh, just Africa. Figure it out yourself. Where do you start, honestly? I just, mean, <sighs> yeah, exactly. Like, I, I don't. What the fuck? Yeah. Take your freaking vaccine and stay the fuck away <laughs> from Africa. Yeah. Africa. They just yeah. said Africa. They just said, yeah. yeah. Like they don't even name a country. Yeah. And they said it so openly. They're just like, 
on national TV. Like, he oh, was yeah. on TV. Yeah, I mean, we're considering doing experiments there. Like, why not? Yeah, these two white bros, they were totally like agreeing with each other on this. And and yeah. I guess the argument, because there was an argument, was, well, there are no masks in there, no treatment, no intensive care again in the whole Africa, <laughs> the whole continent. But also, if you're looking for a place that's not doing a good job and managing <laughs> this whole thing, yeah, maybe go to the US and test it there then. <laughs> Or go to the UK, test it there. Yeah, exactly. I I just can't believe it. Mm. It's like, but then I can't believe that I can't believe it. That's the other thing. Speaking of groups affected more heavily by COVID-19, which hasn't been covered as much, disabled people are going to be and already are severely affected at a most basic level, information about it just not reaching them. So if, you, if you're deaf and you have to use sign language, many media briefings, such as the White House, for example, are done without a sign language interpretation alongside it. Deafblind people, it's even worse for them as they rely on tactile communication. And obviously with social distancing, that's even harder. You know, these disabled people who rely on personal assistance and carers, Often those people will not have protective equipment because they're not considered key workers in the same way as nurses are, for example. And those people will not often not get sick Mm -hmm. pay. So we'll have to choose between putting at risk the person they're working with or losing their money and leaving that person without a carer for the day. So that's some of the issues. But the biggest issue and I would really recommend you all to listen to an online Facebook debate about this by the International Disability Forum called Disability and Coronavirus Discrimination in Urgent Care because that talk focused on triage, basically how hospitals and medical establishments are deciding who they provide their ventilators and their resources to when they're Mm -hmm. overwhelmed by demand. And what's happening around the world as organizations are picking up information is that so if you do have a disability, you're mm-hmm. you're deprioritized. And this happens in many ways, like people will get letters being sent to them telling them, oh, um, are you OK to, to sign this do not resuscitate mm-hmm. order so that if your heart stops beating, we won't resuscitate you. It's assumed that they don't have a good quality of life. It's assumed that they're not a priority, that they should not get the same care, that they should not that they just won't won't be treated as someone who's really needs to be saved, basically. Um, so in the US and Tennessee and Kansas, civil rights lawsuits um, have emerged recently to challenge guidelines that suggest the hospitals should prioritise people who don't have disabilities. In Spain, the ethical guidelines of the Spanish Society of Intensive Care said that any patient with cognitive decline due to dementia or other degenerative diseases will not have medical-assisted ventilation. I think they changed that now. And in the UK, criterion such as like frailty will be taken into account in terms of like who gets access to a ventilator. Mm-hmm. This really takes the lid off who we value as a society. All right, some tips what to do while on lockdown. Okay. I just finished Girl, Woman, Other by Bernadine Everisto. Oh my God. I would recommend everyone to read that. Go and buy that now. 
like seriously oh my god just so <laughs> if good you can yeah oh <laughs> um also if you're looking for good books to get lost in half of a yellow sun by chimamanda and gozi adichie it's the kind of book where you get completely drawn into fantastic characters and interpersonal relationships and at the end you realize you've also gained this kind of fascinating ground level insight into into a really important part of of history because this is set during the Nigerian civil war in the late 1960s one of the best books I've ever read Mm-mm. what what books would you recommend I've got one I haven't read it yet <laughs> <laughs> classic but... <laughs> I know I, do you read I, any I, of I don't them? read but <laughs> just the blurb I've never I've never I've never read anything barely <laughs> barely the blurb this may piss you off a little bit so my recommendation again I didn't read it but I did pre-order it it's called bigger than Bernie oh it basically says Bernie has reshaped the landscape of American politics but where does the political revolution go next it's not just about this one politician it's more than that we've mobilized there are a lot of progressives now who want change and how can we make the most of this movement it already gave us politicians like aoc ilan omar how can we mobilize even more and through you know grassroots efforts take this thing to the next level and i really like that approach because i also think that what has been going on in the us it's not just the career of one candidate mm. especially not a old white man's so it's written by megan day and mika utrecht sorry for butchering that name but um i've been following megan on social media for i think years now and I really do like her perspective. So when I saw that book online, I was like, I need to get it. So we'll put a link down below. Okay, I want to recommend a non-political podcast just to give you guys a break. How dare you? (laughs) The New Yorker Fiction podcast is great. It's authors reading out their favorite short stories and then they discuss it. So it's like 35 to 50 minutes of, of amazing beautiful short stories that just completely transport you somewhere else and then a short discussion about it and you can do that you know you can listen to the whole story in one go which is a really different way of absorbing a tale I think so I'll do that while I'm Mm. sitting out in the sun or doing some gardening I'd really recommend that nice one more recommendation from me which is the new edition of the Green European Journal This whole episode, we've been talking about how we have all these interlinked crises, the COVID-19, economic recession, the climate emergency, the biodiversity loss. And again, we've been talking about how politics is changing. We're probably not going back to quote unquote normal. But when I look at what's been happening, like some governments talking about basic income, the Amsterdam local authorities introducing the donut model it gives me some hope because people are now realizing that green ideas are more important than ever and they will be more and more influential going forward and of course we also need to be there to make sure that that happens so the question is what does this all mean for green politics as we enter the 
2020s. So this edition basically focuses on a lot of green concepts, such as ecofeminism and the Green New Deal, to questions of narrative, institutional change. It just looks into the forces, strategies, and ideas that will power green politics. And the idea is that with this kind of unique and diverse approach to society and politics and these important ideas, political ecology and green politics will be central to the fight for the kind of future on the other side of that portal that Arundhati Roy was mentioning. Yeah, I read it as well. It's a great addition. So the link will be down below. Okay, this is my final tip. It's about poetry. First of all, I'd recommend, I've done this a couple years ago, signing up to the Poetry Foundation's daily email. Sends you one poem a day. They're often related to what's going on that day in the world. It can be overwhelming if you already get too many emails. So maybe make a folder that you can just dip in and out of. I've discovered so many obscure and wonderful poets that way that I would never have found out about otherwise. I think they also have like a web page on their website. Yeah. I think it's like poem of the day. So you can even check that out. What about you, Sidan? I also don't <laughs> read poems. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Yeah. No. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I've been actually following... Actually, like a, this is a similar recommendation to what you said. A daily poetry Instagram account called Lockdown Poems. That's the Instagram handle. And you can find a poem for each day of the 2020 lockdown. And it is really lovely. And the, the thing that I like about it is like, it's not just optimistic. Some days it's quite like yeah this is sad because sometimes lockdown is a bit uh depressing and sad and also another good thing about um the selection the diversity of the poets you can find all backgrounds all kinds of people and their poems which is something i really appreciate it's a really cool account my book recommendation to do with poetry is a book called the poetry pharmacy it's by mm. william seekhart this guy knows so many poems and he's been a poet and, and a fan of poetry since he was a really young boy and he basically has a poem to match any emotion or feeling that someone describes to him so he does this at like events he'll he'll sit down in a tent or something and people come in and say oh this is how I'm feeling you know I'm feeling really depressed because I've just been left by my husband or I can't bear to come out to my parents. You know, whatever you're feeling, he, he's got a poem for you. And um, this book, this compilation, there's a list of different feelings. It's like a little um, like little guide. So I thought I would read to you the, the one for anxiety. Oh, nice. Okay, this is actually the first one on his list. When despair for the world grows in me and I wake in the night at the least sound, in fear of what my life and children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of the wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water and I feel above me the day blind stars waiting with their light. For a time I rest in the grace of the world and I'm free. So that is the peace of wild things by Wendell Berry. Wow. Do you have an article to 
Okay. I actually don't have an article, but I was going to say, don't put too much pressure on yourself to achieve things <laughs> in this lockdown period. If you're lucky enough not to have um, lots of shit that you need to do, then if you have to slow down, just just enjoy it, basically. You don't even have to use that time to learn a new language or get really fit. Just relax. Don't feel guilty for downtime or low productivity. Don't listen to the news too much. That's my tip. But listen to this podcast. Listen to this. She means <laughs> this podcast is, is fine. This is all you need. <laughs> yeah, there's, and there's a lot going on outside. There's no reason why we should be fine. It's all very scary. There's something quite huge happening in the world outside that we're part of. Exactly. You are a part of it, but you also can't really take decisions. Exactly. Yeah. So that lack of control is also exhausting. And with that lack of control also comes uncertainty because we also don't know what's going to happen. And that's also very exhausting. Yes. And anxiety inducing. Do you think it's the same kind of feeling of like anxiety and powerlessness of like something huge and disastrous happening around you that you can't do anything about? Is, do you think that's the same feeling as like climate chaos and climate change accelerated? Good question. Very good question. I think so. Yeah. I think at a subconscious, like low level, this is the, mm -hmm. this is the feeling that we've all been feeling about climate change and climate chaos happening, like slowly and disastrously, like unfolding and developing outside our control in the world yeah. beyond us. Um, and this is like a really accelerated version that is also different because we know it's being dealt with in some way, imperfectly. But... Mm -hmm. For so long, mm -hmm. we've just been knowing that this shit is getting worse around us and no one's acting. Mm -hmm. It's very similar. Two differences. One is, like you said, I think people could say that it's been slower. Yeah, definitely. Like this happened in three, four months, I think. Right. Yeah. But that being said, being that aware of the climate crisis could be actually more anxiety inducing because there is not an action being taken. Exactly. At least with this pandemic, obviously it depends on where you live. But personally for me in Belgium, the more I see the government is taking action, it reassures me to an extent. But when it comes to the climate crisis, it's, it's, it's the opposite. Also, I would say um, write letters because, you know, we're getting a lot of screen time right now. Maybe you're like Zooming your friends all the time. It gets a bit overwhelming, especially if you're, if you're working on your computer in the day. Communicate with people, but try slow communication. You know, write to people you've been meaning to write to for ages. And I think we communicate really differently in a letter to face to face. So you might find interesting things coming up as well. It's mm. a good tip. Thank you. You got any? just don't get fat i feel like i've been getting <laughs> this is the opposite of my tip i'm like go easy on yourself <laughs> no um you've made me feel so earnest oh read some poetry <laughs> no but just stay safe you know yeah. i think at first most of us including me we didn't realize that staying at home was going to be like a job in and of itself because 
you are actually protecting yourself from something and that is a task and if you go to the supermarket do a big shop you need to like clean everything afterwards you need to clean the apartment we are actually doing more than just staying at home if we can acknowledge that i think for someone like me like it helped lower the expectations from everything else i thought i would do great point during lockdown it's an active thing it's not just passive you're changing your whole schedule exactly. you're creating a new life so true so we do yeah. actually have a very active position in everything that's going on yeah it's not just like sitting and eating a lot which is something i do <laughs> uh constantly just constant eating oh yeah well, that's life i mean that's that's the highlight of life now isn't it it's the meals <laughs> It's just, it really yeah, is. you got, you got to enjoy it. <laughs> so we're going to be exploring these themes in more detail and other themes like universal basic income and states of emergencies and how states will use this to entrench their power and so much more in future episodes. We'll also bring you some non-COVID-19 content, so keep an eye out for that. All right, folks, that's our show. You can follow us and show us some love on Twitter at Big Green Pulp Pod. You can find us on any podcast apps, iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. And if you want to help us make green politics more accessible, subscribe and support us by leaving us a rating or a review. Thank you so much and see you soon.